0: Warbyparker.com
1: covered. Hello, welcome to the McCliffer Podcast with the Irish Examiner. And you're all very welcome again this week. Now, with the conflict in Gaza apparently entering a new phase, we thought it might be time to take stock. Last week, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Mihal Martin, made a whistle-stop tour around the Middle East and among those travelling with him was Irish Examiner political editor Elaine Lachlan. At home, there has been differing approaches to how this country is responding and, and should respond, particularly to the awful bombing that has rendered much of Gaza as little more than rubble and accounted for over 14,000 deaths at this stage. The government of this country appears to be more critical of Israel than any of the other EU states, but many in the opposition want the government to go further. So we have a lot of emotion, a lot of words, some might even say a lot of posturing, notwithstanding the genuine feelings of sympathy and empathy for the Palestinian people right now. And Sinn Féin has a strange conundrum on top of all that. It's uh, just recently reported that its US arm, Friends of Sinn Féin, has been extraordinarily quiet on the conflict. Presumably because maybe they're caught between stools. They're in the USA and at the same time they're part of Sinn Féin and there'd be very differing attitudes between those two entities on the conflict as it stands. Anyway, to uh, to run the rule over all of that... We are joined now by the aforementioned Elaine Lachlan. Elaine, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. Elaine, we'll get to high diplomacy and and what have you in a minute, but on a more basic level, a photograph of the tarnished while he was in Israel has kind of gone viral, and uh, people may well have seen this uh, on Twitter or other social media. It's been in some of the newspapers as well, including the Examiner. But it shows him pointing to a hole in the ceiling in a room in which he's standing and he appears to be indicating the damage that was done. This, I think, was in the Kibbutz in Israel. And there's been a certain amount of negative reaction to it. Some people suggesting he was kind of using a a photo opportunity completely inappropriately and others contrasting the relatively, and it is damaged, it's it's a rocket coming through a ceiling anyway, but compared to what's been going on in Gaza, the relatively... um, minor damage compared to the collapse of building upon building in Gaza as a result of the Israeli bombing. Well, we have the inside track on this because uh, Elaine Lachlan was present for that photograph and even more than that, I believe, Elaine.
2: Yes, Mick, and I think this is really a lesson on how, you know, we say always that a picture can paint a thousand words, but I think in the days of social media and sharing and manipulation, a photo can really be used to to paint a thousand words that are not reflective of the reality of of how that picture was taken and the context of it. And as you said, I was in the room when that picture was taken. And in fact, I, hands up, I'm the person who took that picture, contrary to what has been said (laughs) online. And I know even I was speaking to a number of TDs and politicians in Leinster House this week who were very interested, obviously, in the trip to Israel to the West Bank and to Egypt over a whirlwind number of days with the Thonish, the Mihal Martin. And in in speaking about this, I actually it was it was noteworthy to say that one politician was commenting on Mihal Martin's trip and said, "God, well that picture that he put up on his social media, really, what was he thinking?" And I had to stop them there and say, "That picture did not go up on Mihal Martin's social media." I took that picture, I took it on my phone, it was a quick pick. it wasn't a posed picture and it's in that context of, you know, Images can be shared and manipulated and reshared again and again and again, so many times that actually getting to the source of where it came from or how it came about can be almost impossible for especially members of the general public who are flicking through, whether it's Instagram, whether it's X or other social media um, platforms. And it's very easy to distort reality um, and just. To give you a bit of background, that picture, as I said, which was quickly taken on my iPhone and sent back to my digital desk, the examiner's digital desk, it has to be said with a video, uh, which also was posted on the Irish examiner's social media channels with that picture. Um, And the video is, is obviously, it gives far more context. It pans around the room, but that video has not gone viral, which is interesting in itself. And... At the time, Michal Martin had been shown the damage done by a rocket that was uh, fired from Gaza in those attacks after the October 7th attack. It was in the town of Zerdorot, which is only a mile across the border from Gaza. And he was shown the fact that a bit of the missile had got stuck in the roof, essentially between the ceiling and the roof. Now, a number in the party hadn't been there when that had been pointed out and he was then pointing this out to others who were also in that in that residential building, that home that was partly destroyed and it was at that point I happened to be on the shoulder of the person that he was speaking to directly next to him, took the quick pic with my phone. Now when you look at it, it perhaps, some may interpret it as him looking directly down the camera, just happened that way he certainly wasn't looking at me wasn't really aware that I was taking the picture because you know there were a number of officials there his own officials Israeli officials and then a small group of reporters in that um that home and obviously members of the family were there as well to describe what happened on the day and it it really took off from there and we've seen how it's been used and some would say abused um Online to promote certain narratives that I said really did not reflect uh, how it was taken and the situation that it was taken in.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting, Elaine. Because, like a lot of other people, and I'm even in the media, the kind of um, image that you're, you're you're suggesting was erroneously projected there. I bought into that myself. though I I didn't think there was anything particularly wrong with it, but it most certainly looked like a posed photograph. Of the tarnished, uh, uh, making a point that he was here at the scene of some of, of of the rockets and what have you. In a way, the politicians do; it's part of their brief. But as you say, the reality was completely different, and. What really goes to the heart of that, I would think, is you posted a video at the same time, but the video didn't go viral because presumably the video had a lot more context and that would have given the true uh, story of what was occurring rather than this, which could and has been manipulated for people's own ends.
2: Exactly. And I suppose you can't make a meme out of a video. You can't, you know, add bits and pieces and and mark up videos in the same way that you can take a picture and perhaps, you know, edit it, add a few bits and pieces to it as well and share it and pass it on and of course once it is passed on in that way on social media you see how it spreads like wildfire and perhaps explaining the context to it is is almost impossible and I think one of the criticisms as well that was being mounted in the context of sharing that picture was the fact that Michal Martin went to Israel as I said he also did visit that same day the West Bank and had been to Egypt the day before and we do know that in the context of this conflict egypt has a key role to play i think egypt is one of a few states that perhaps if anyone is going to be able to talk to to hamas or members of hamas it is egyptian officials and they've had those type of links over the years across the border into gaza with hamas so i think michael martin put particular emphasis on going to Egypt and speaking to his Egyptian counterparts. But he did meet with the Israelis and you cu- it could be said that the Israeli officials were only delighted to have a foreign minister there so they could show him around towns like Zerderot. He also was brought to that kibbutz, the Biri kibbutz, uh, which we know Emily Hand was, was last seen in. And there were pictures taken and like mine some of them spread wider and further than others but he also got in the room with his Israeli counterparts and said things that they really did not want to hear. You know, he stressed the need for a humanitarian ceasefire immediately. He stressed the need for a two state solution. And he also pointed out to the absolute trauma and devastation that is being inflicted on the people of Gaza literally within, you know, a kilometre of some of the areas that he was in while he was speaking to both Eli Cohn, the Israeli foreign minister, but also the mayor of Zerdorot and others who hopefully, you would imagine, will be relaying those messages further up the chain to Israeli officials and government members and certainly didn't pull back in putting Ireland's case forward and stating that we want a two-state solution. We are in favour of that. And also, as I said, pointing out the the loss of life on a just an unimaginable scale now at this stage in Gaza.
1: Yeah, and it is interesting, the week that was in it, Elaine, because um, there was a contrast and the contrast was Michal Martin was over there, as you say, he was engaging with all sides, Uh, as you say, some people in this country because of a general affinity to the Palestinians and its long-standing. But in some minds, some people want that to translate as having absolutely no engagement with the Israelis, which... I'd find kind of ironic coming from this country because the one thing we know about when you've conflict and you've sides, the one thing you need to keep doing is dialogue. You need to have some kind of peace up. Yet, that would seem to be the position of some people on what's described as the left. And you can debate what exactly the left is these days. But the contrast between that and Martin over there doing the diplomacy, making the hard yards and that kind of thing. How would you say... He performed, and I, I mean that word in the best sense in, in terms of his role as a politician, as, as an honest broker and that kind of thing. How would you say he performed during that trip in terms of his engagements with the various parties?
2: Well, certainly, as I've mentioned before, that meeting with the mayor of Zurderot was in a, a packed room in the town hall. There were about 22 officials around the boardroom and then a number of media, including myself, got in to line the walls of what was a very stuffy wall. But there was a palpable sense of tension in that room um, and the mayor started off by asking Eli Cohen, are these guys with us and that kind of set the tone. Now, Eli Cohn explained that, yes, these were the Irish officials that were coming to see and to hear. And Mihal Martin subsequently said that he was here to see and to hear and to witness um, some of the, the atrocities that went on in that October 7th Hamas attack, but equally pointed, again, as I said before, to what is going on across the border. And when you were there as well, um, Mick, These are communities that are very much aware of what Israel has been doing since those October 7th uh, attacks.
1: When you said, are these guys with us, was the inference there is these people are Irish and we have a suspicion as to whether the Irish are with us or or was it a more general thing?
2: Yes, I think that is the case. Like Israel, you know, you go back to 2021 when this doll came together, united and voted uh, to condemn the illegal annexation by Israel of parts of of the West Bank. So that signal has been out there and even long before that I think politicians from across the political spectrum had been united in their view of what is going on in Israel and Palestine for many many decades now not just recent years and the conflict. So I think Ireland would have been viewed even long before the October 7th attacks as certainly pro-Palestinian in their stance. Now I think um, some would argue that being pro-Palestinian doesn't mean that you are anti-Israeli or anti-Semitic. It just means that you are fighting for uh, a people who really have been targeted and subjected to a level of, I suppose, containment in some ways um, over many years that uh, Irish people just cannot agree with.
1: Yeah, and he had engagements as well on the West Bank and I'm just curious, did you detect anything there that uh, people in the West Bank, Palestinians, had any sense of affinity with the Irish delegation and the flip side of of the attitudes to the Israelis or, or were they just another Western country coming in here kind of thing?
2: Well, I think that's one thing, and it's not just this most recent trip, but I think every Irish government politician that has visited Israel is always conscious that they visit the Palestinian Authority as well in the West Bank, and we make a point of that. And it was interesting as well, you know, going across that border from Jerusalem into Ramallah, we went through a very quiet, deserted crossing, it has to be said, and usually that crossing would be very busy with Palestinians and there's about 110,000 Palestinians who have work permits to cross that border each day um, to go into Israel and Israeli settlements and they work in everything from construction they're nurses in hospitals, they're teachers in Israeli schools, and that has all stopped since October 7th. And these are people who are supporting maybe 9, 10, 11, 12 members of their family and extended family. And that source of income has now been cut off overnight. So we are all seeing the bombardment of Gaza and there are, you know, 400 bombs going off or have been 400 bombs going off each day in Gaza since this started. But in the West Bank, I think the screw has been turned and tightened up a notch significantly. And I think I saw online a, a, a really good comment in recent days and it said while while Gaza is under fire, the West Bank smoulders. And it really is a case of... um you know, between cutting off a source of income through not letting uh, Palestinians cross that border to go to work in Israel every day, through the ramping up of bulldozing ha- houses and also the raids that are going on in the West Bank every day. There's there's around 40 Israeli raids daily since October 7th. Um, and they're on family homes and they can go on for hours. You know, it can be entire communities that are... Um, that are impacted by these raids and, and, you know, you've seen kind of houses destroyed, you've seen cars uh, burnt out by Israeli um, armed forces when they go in and carry out those raids.
1: Yeah, you're right. It is absolutely insidious. I mean, what's going on in Gaza at at, at the moment is a humanitarian disaster and and the constant bombing of civilians is just completely and utterly unacceptable on any human level. But what's been going on in the West Bank is nothing more than a land grab. And you have now 700,000 Israelis living in the West Bank and just taking land, and moving in there, and a lot of them are religious I don't know, fanatics, are the right word to use, that believe they have some biblical connection to it. More of them are going in there for a lifestyle choice. But what they're doing more than anything is putting further away the day when you can have a genuine two-state solution and that the West Bank could form the basis for the Palestinian state because they're in there, they're displacing people, they're increasing their numbers. It's really insidious and as you say, when the focus is on the far side of the country in Gaza, all that kind of stuff is going on now all the time and that is as much the legacy of Netanyahu as anything, that kind of thing that's going on. Rather than, than going back, and I know it's thirty years now and, and more before the, the, the two state solution appeared to be the basis for a peace agreement, but it's really pushing that further out. It's really, really bad, uh, that whole scenario.
2: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Need new glasses or want a
0: fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered.
1: Elaine, since you came back, you'll have noticed (laughs) the shenanigans in the dawn. Well, I mean, maybe it's a bit unfair to call them shenanigans. People have genuine feelings, but I would have to say what strikes me, and I'd be just very curious about your opinion. On one side, the government are being practical, and I think, to be fair to them, are reflecting the feelings of an awful lot of people here. Yet, large sections of the opposition would appear to genuinely believe they're not going far enough and they want them to go a lot further, but... Were we to go to the kind of lengths that the likes of people before For Profit want us to go to, and Sinn Féin to a lesser degree, do we start running into trouble? Do we start uh, negating any kind of leverage we have? And, and do, we, do we move away from um, other EU countries with which we're closely aligned?
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. And we had this discussion, I suppose, at the outbreak of the war, Russia's attack on Ukraine, where there were calls for the expulsion of the Russian ambassador. And again, the same argument was made by the government was you have to keep these people in the room. You have to keep those communication links open. And we do have Irish citizens still in Gaza and I think the Irish government are very conscious of that. And obviously, I think Micheál Martin has pointed to the fact that it's no coincidence that he was speaking to his Egyptian counterparts, that he was in Egypt when the first group of 23 Irish citizens crossed the border at Rafa into Egypt. And this has... Been the culmination of many, many weeks of phone calls, of meetings, of discussions, of diplomats talking to their counterparts in Egypt, in Israel, in the West Bank, in Qatar, in the US, across the Middle East on a sometimes hourly basis to make sure that those Irish people were on that list initially and then got out. And obviously we do still have a small number still in Gaza, and I said, but if you cut those links uh, with Israel, you know, at that time, especially anyway, I suppose it would have made the act of getting those people out very, very difficult, if not impossible. So there is the argument for that. I think members of the government, and we do know that Ireland went further than the majority of European countries at the very start of this and it does seem like other European nations are now coming closer if not meeting uh, what the Irish have been saying but I think within government as well a lot of people probably within government would love to go if not as far as some members of the opposition would certainly like to go further than the stance that we have now but Diplomacy comes into that and what you can say while you're in power and you have to speak to your international powers versus what you can say when you're in opposition. Um, there is there is that gap there. And I think probably one of the people who's gone furthest is perhaps um, Minister Simon Harris, who who said in the Daw last week and reiterated again this week that you can't build peace on the graves of children a really strong statement i think from him and i think probably something that privately a lot in in, in government may be saying may be agreeing with but publicly uh can't possibly Go that far now. It'll be interesting though there is an EU summit coming up at the start of December uh, and obviously Taoiseach uh, Leo Varadkar will be at that. It'll be interesting to see how far he goes and how far he tries to push his European counterparts on possibly even, you know, we have the call for a humanitarian ceasefire at the moment Will he try and get his fellow um, leaders down the road of of pushing for a full ceasefire, of condemning uh, Israel in even stronger terms, and and see, you know, if he can actually bring a few other countries along with him. We do know the likes of Spain are probably of the same mindset as ourselves right now, and maybe a number of states can bandy together to put more pressure on those who are possibly lagging and are less critical um of Israel up until now. Um, so I think that's one to watch in the coming in the coming time. Yeah, and
1: another element to the opposition um, at the moment uh, just emerged there in the last few days about um, a bit of a dilemma Sinn Féin have and that is the Friends of Sinn Féin, their US arm, brilliant fundraising organisation, fantastic for raising funds for the party and contributes to, I think, the party status. is generally accepted as, as the wealthiest party on, on this island. But they have been extremely quiet about the conflict, whereas the mothership, Sinn Féin here and in the Dáil and what have you, have been extremely vocal and and I was down at the Sinn Féin Ardesh, as you were yourself and the tumultuous uh, reception that the Palestinian ambassador got there was really a reflection of how much the Palestinian cause is, is, is there within the psyche of Sinn Féin. Yet at the same time, their US arm is very quiet and you have to... Suspect, that's largely because the, the the kind of line that Sinn Fein have would not go down at all well in the United States.
2: Yes, and even I suppose politically, Sinn Fein are gearing up for government in Dublin after the next general election, and that's fairly clear and I think almost expected uh, within the Sinn Fein ranks at this stage. And it was interesting at the beginning of this conflict or this latest bout, shall we call it, that Sinn Féin stopped short of calling for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador in Ireland. And it was only after a number of days and we saw Mary Lou Macdonald go up to Belfast, where I think the party was under significantly more heat uh, than down here at the time, um, that she then changed that and did call for the expulsion of the ambassador and since then has been doing the same. They didn't put that in their motion uh, last week. Sinn Féin did support another motion which did call for the expulsion. But it is worth keeping an eye on because I think definitely Mary Lou Macdonald is looking at what is achievable if she were to be in government and the stance that she takes now will obviously be looked at and will be compared and contrast with what she does as a future Taoiseach if that's um, if that's what happens after the next general election.
1: Yeah. Elaine just to go back briefly to your time over in the Middle East and because again as I say and I think it's totally accepted the affinity we have for the Palestinians, I think it would also be fair to say, notwithstanding the the awful um actions of, of the Israeli Defence Forces at the moment, but I just wonder, do we in this country have any appreciation of the psyche of the Israelis? And from where we're looking, they look like they just hate the Palestinians and they're out to, people use the the phrase genocide a lot. But I get the impression that um, a mentality that's there, particularly since October the 8th, is one whereby in their minds they're back to The centuries of pogroms and what have you and Hamas quite obviously have stated blindly they're out to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, notwithstanding their complete inability to do so militarily. But I get the impression that the Israelis, their emotions are so high at the moment because of October 7th that they don't see what's going on in Gaza through the same kind of eyes that we do. Do do you have any kind of insight in that from your time over there?
2: Yeah, and I think you're probably right there. There is that kind of memory and trauma that has been handed down through the generations um, amongst Israelis. But I think one thing that has been said uh, by the Taoiseach here in, in the doll this week is he fears that they're now blinded by hate. And I th- it definitely struck me when we were in that kibbutz, the Be'ri kibbutz, and the that was being shown around, family homes that have, have been left there uh, after being firebombed and you know you see a child's comb on the floor, you see the remnants of dinner on the table uh, and these are these are families that are not coming back because they were taken out um, and this was an atrocity and, and then many of them are still being held hostage in Gaza. So there is that that real trauma and, and it's it's visceral. But at the same time, as we were being told about that day by a number of survivors who managed to, to get into safe rooms and lock themselves away for hours before the IDF came eventually to get them out. They were telling us about the trauma and Michal Martin was shown pictures as well of the devastation and the aftermath. There were bombs going off across the border and they were so close that you could feel the ground tremble underneath. And for a number of us, it was actually difficult to concentrate on what the survivors were actually telling us because that palpable feeling underneath our feet and both the sheer sound of what was going on across the border. And I, I, have a, I have an eight minute recording on my phone and across those entire eight minutes, it was a continuous boom in the background from what was going on. And, and it's, it just shows the level of hatred there must be when people cannot feel for neighbours, that are literally a few kilometres across a wire fence or a a concrete wall and and cannot associate the absolute trauma that they must be going through. They cannot see, despite the fact that they can hear the bombs, they can feel the bombs and they can see the smoke plumes in the air. They cannot see their neighbours as human beings. They don't associate their own trauma or they cannot kind of, I, I suppose, relate... Uh, to the fact that they are going through trauma but their neighbours are also going through trauma and we see the videos time and time again and I know people scroll through them and you don't maybe uh, look at them all now at this stage but I saw one this morning and it really uh, hit home with me and it was of a child. She was probably about six or seven years of age and it wasn't the most graphic of images that I've seen Mick but she was sitting on a gurney and it was clear that there were two other children on that hospital gurney with her she was covered in debris she had you know blood on her face it didn't look like she was badly uh, injured thankfully but she was there her hair was matted her face was grey her clothes were covered in in debris and it kind of struck me; she had no parent there to wipe her face. She probably had no one there as well to change her clothes. And I kind of wondered how long is she going to sit in those clothes alone? And we've here heard the the acronym now as well of WCNCF—that's Wounded Child No Surviving Family—and it's it's just devastating. It's hard to comprehend. What is happening in Gaza now? And I think the Taunus as well, when he was on the Israeli side, the other side of the border, he mentioned and warned that what Israel is doing now is only going to create another generation of radicalised young people because they are seeing, they're feeling, they are grieving right now, and that grief will turn into anger. Um, and I think Israel probably should think long and hard, but unfortunately they don't seem to be thinking uh, long and hard about the consequences of their actions right now. And this is just going to, to create another generation who who are so blinded by hate, probably on both sides of that border, that this conflict will unfortunately go on for, for a long time to come.
1: It's so true. It is uh, it is awful when you see that kind of thing and when you see the, the premature babies that were born in those hospitals in Gaza and you just wonder... Good God! What being brought into the world? What prospects do they have being born into that kind of a situation? And I think you're absolutely right there. Unless something is is sorted out politically, and it can only be politically, you are inevitably going to see massive radicalization of an awful lot of Palestinians in relation to that. Um. Elaine, one final thing before you go and it's foreign policy again but a slightly different vein. Uh, this week, of course, Mihal Martin fresh back from the Middle East and he announces in the doll the ending, uh, or he hopes he's going to legislate for the ending of this triple lock and the triple lock being the uh, the three uh, tests, so to speak, that have to be passed for Irish defence forces to um, be engaged anywhere. One being the Dáil, one being the government and the third being the UN Security Council. And uh, I think something along these lines might have been recommended by the consultative forum that was on recently. But one way or the other, he's decided we're going to get rid of the UN element of that And there's been a lot of loud opposition to that so far. Do you see this becoming any kind of a problem for the government or is it something that will just go through with, you know, the usual kind of uh, bit of opposition here and there, but ultimately will just take the course through through the houses?
2: I think this is something that the opposition will do everything in their power to certainly slow down, if not stop. Because it did come quite uh, unexpected, it has to be said, on Wednesday evening as the Taunashta addressed the doll on those security forums that were, uh, that took place over the summer in Galway, uh, Cork and Dublin around our security. Cyber security was a neutrality. All of those type of, of issues were discussed at those forums. And he, he said that basically the triple lock system is not really working anymore for Ireland. And that is because of that effective UN veto, which gives the five permanent members of the UN security a say as to whether we take part in foreign peacekeeping missions. And he pointed to the fact that there are a number of countries who probably do are happy to veto those uh, China, the UK and the US and of course Russia are among the permanent members of the Security Council and also the Honish pointed out in the doll that it took six weeks for that Security Council um, to make a statement and call for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. So um, I think there are a lot of things that need to be sorted out with the UN Security Council but whether or not uh, removing the triple lock is the way to do that or is the way to respond to that I think the opposition will be very very vehemently against doing that and it it really remains to see how far the government want to push on this the Tánaiste did say that he's already got his officials in the Department of Defence to start drafting this legislation Um, so it seems to be something that they want to get done in the short time now that they have left in government and get over the line
1: yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it advances and I suppose in, in some ways what it is is a, a nuanced approach to something being brought in or being attempted at a time when so much of politics is seen in tribal fashion or is in black and white and as a result um, it could well run into some trouble but it's something we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on. Elaine, listen, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mick. That's Elaine Lachlan, folks. Uh, Irish Examiner, political editor and you can read her column every Saturday in the Irish Examiner. Thanks to Elaine. Thanks also, as always, to JJ Fern our engineer. Thank you for listening. Stay with us. We'll be back again next week. Take it easy.